Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends and neighbors. It's Friday, July 8, and it's Reporters Roundtable time on the Bill Press Pod. Well, no action in Congress this week, but lots of action on the political front starting in Georgia, where the district attorney of Fulton County investigating possible election fraud issued subpoenas to big-time Trump allies Rudy Giuliani, John Eastman, and Lindsey Graham, among others. Meanwhile, Herschel Walker, Georgia's Trump-endorsed Republican Senate candidate, admits he's been lying to his campaign staff. They still aren't sure how many kids he has. Suddenly, in this post-row world, governor races in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania have become a lot more critical and are getting a lot more attention. In a bizarre twist on all of that, California Governor Gavin Newsom, who's a cinch for re-election, is running a campaign commercial on television in Florida. And Democrats have decided to blame everything that's wrong with America from mass murders to record high summer temperatures on Joe Biden. Well, here today to help us make some sense of it all from New York Magazine, national political correspondent Gabe DiBenedetti, from the New York Times, national political reporter Maya King, and from NBC and MSNBC News, political reporter Alex Seitzwald. So uh, I want to start a little differently this week. Um, Again, Congress kind of out out of action uh, this week, but a lot of action on the national political scene, which both of you cover. So let me ask you, what was the one big story you were working on this week? Gabe, start us off. Uh, Well, in addition to working on trying to take some time off for the 4th of July vacation, uh, not successfully, Uh, I just wrapped up a story um, about, as you alluded to, the uh, gubernatorial races in uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, which I think we'll have an opportunity to talk about. But for the most part, I've really just been interested in another theme you've been ta- you you alluded to there, which is the idea that uh, Joe Biden, the the president, the popular Democratic president within the party at least, is getting a ton of pressure for just uh, not doing enough according to many of his critics within his own party. I'll have plenty of thoughts on that when we talk about it, but it has been very striking to me. Uh Uh-huh. How about you, Uh, Maya? Yeah, I started this week um, finishing up a round of reporting I've been doing around Stacey Abrams, Black voters, and uh, Georgia's likely six-week abortion ban to take place in the next few weeks here, um, which was a nice foray out of vacation into getting back into Georgia until yesterday, um, as you mentioned at the top of the show, yet another round of negative uh, stories surrounding Herschel Walker and his campaign. So very quickly switched gears now uh, to figuring out what else we can say, not only about the campaign, but really our question um, being what Georgia Republicans, particularly in the establishment, donor and um, consultant class, are now thinking about their Senate pick. Right. Well, let's dive into that a little bit. And Gabe, you weigh in as well. Um, Maya, it was reported yesterday that Herschel Walker had been, in fact, lying to his campaign staff about uh, how many kids he had fathered. Um, And uh, some of the staffers were quoted, I don't think by name, I'm not sure, calling him a, um, uh, what's the phrase, pathological liar. (laughs) One of them said he lies like he's breathing. He's, uh, it's come so natural to him. Um, is this a surprise to people? And what do you think the impact could be? I mean, he is the candidate and he's endorsed by Donald Trump. I don't think it's a surprise to the reporters who have been covering this campaign because they have kept him so under wraps. It is extremely difficult to try to uh, attend events figure out where events are. I mean, yesterday he 
had a um, sort of a dinner roundtable with the young Republicans in Buckhead. And I arrived and was quickly asked to leave because it was a <laughs> press event to give you an idea. Um, you know, if, if reporters aren't allowed to cover the young Republicans, it's kind of a sign of where, of where the campaign's head is. But at the same time, I think that it is not uncommon for aides and senior staffers to blow off some steam in chat rooms and, and kind of, uh, I guess, complain or at least really talk about their frustrations with their candidate. It's no secret that Walker is an untested and um, pretty unconventional, to put it lightly, uh, candidate for for the off force, the Senate, no less. And I think that's really what that story captured, which is the fact that, you know, this is someone who has never run for office before, has a lot of a lot in his past that they did not previously know about. And um, all of that is sort of coming to a head on a staff that I think did not realize in many ways who and what they were getting in Herschel Walker's candidacy. And I'll just say one one more thing about the story around his kids, because I think it's been a little bit misconstrued why the media, uh, why reporters are paying such close attention to that storyline. And it's not necessarily because he's been hiding his kids, though as a public figure and someone running for office, you know, nothing is is really off limits. But the bigger thing here is the fact that this is someone in Walker who has spent so much airtime railing against absentee fathers, absent mm. dads in black uh-huh. households and saying, you know, this is a really big problem in black households, even apologizing to the black community on conservative media networks. And so for, all, I mean, you can point to a number of different instances in which he's done this and then immediately then to turn around and see the number of children whose lives he has not really been involved in, according to the Daily Beast's reporting, it's just a really big, um, I mean, it just kind of makes him look like a hypocrite on this issue that is really sensitive to a number of voters and a number of black voters in a state like Georgia, where that's going to matter a lot. So um, Mm -hmm. just wanted to also put that out there. Uh, Gabe, there's the other question about uh, Herschel Walker is basically whether He's fit to be United States senator. I mean, if he's fit to be, I don't know, dog catcher. But uh, in terms of he doesn't seem to have much of a grasp of the issues here, for example, he was asked uh, just earlier this week about uh, whether or not he would support uh, any stronger gun control legislation after the mass massacre at the school shooting, which was a week ago, I guess, in Uvalde, Texas. Here's Herschel Walker. Are you, do you support any new gun laws in the wake of this Texas shooting? Do, what now? do you support new gun laws in the wake well, of this what Texas I like shooting? To do, what I like to do is see it and, uh, and everything and stuff. Uh, just to, it's a little hard to hear. The translation is his response was, What I like to do is see it and everything and stuff. Gabe, senatorial candidate? Well, you know, this sort of speaks to what Maya was just talking about, um, which is that there he was really not a tested candidate. But I think I, I'm of a few minds about this, one of which is, you know, we've seen the uh, inability of a lot of senators recently, uh, particularly some of these celebrity ish Republican senators in recent years, you know, not really to uh, engage with 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 policy at all or with real tough questions. So that part is not surprising in the broadest sense, though, the like sheer inability to answer these questions is galling. I do think this speaks to, though, um, two bets that the Republicans in Georgia were making in a pretty uh, explicit way when they threw their lot behind Walker. And one was that the power of celebrity would be enough to carry him. And that's something that I think is difficult for people outside of Georgia, you know, myself included, to uh, get their head around because he is a super serious celebrity, a former college football star. Um, And the other thing is the idea that, you know, we live in a world now that is so hyperpolarized in Georgia in particular is as such that, um, you know, he's not going to have to run the most active campaign that simply being a Republican in an election like this one will be enough for him. You know, obviously we'll see, but this is not the first example of him essentially completely being unable to answer a question like that, that for most candidates for any kind of office would be fairly easy. Uh, uh, Yeah. I think in the primary, you might expect that. It seems to me by the time you get to the general, maybe a little more is expected, but let's bring in our good friend, from NBC and MSNBC News uh, political reporter Alex Seitzwald. Hi, Alex. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Uh, so does this speak to the broader question about um, 
Trump's endorsements overall, maybe not necessarily being uh, necessarily the most vetted. I mean, we saw the Mo Brooks disaster, you know, in Alabama, the original, what was the Sean Parnell, whatever, in Pennsylvania, now Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania, Herschel Walker in Georgia. Who's picking these guys? (laughs) Trump is picking them, which means that, yes, there's not going to be, you know, the most systematic routinized there's there's probably not a lot of metrics i'm guessing there's not uh you know excel spreadsheets that go into these things i think it's a lot of gut feeling and intuition which is how trump operates uh in everything mm. and uh you know we, we know from countless examples it's about things that we might not consider um important like the 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 look quote unquote does does trump think they fit the the kind of bill of what a person should look like in that job. Um, I think he's comes at it from a very TV mentality. He, he did actually play a, a casting director in a way on the apprentice. Uh, and right. Um, so I think that's kind of where he's coming at it. And Herschel Walker is, is a TV candidate in a way, or at least a version of him. Um, and there's also a lot of when it's one guy picking it, there's a lot of kind of funny things that come into play. So you hear, we see reporting about like Mehmet Oz and others, um, you know, just kind of hanging around Mar-a-Lago, making lots of trips to just try to appear in Trump's peripheral vision, to say hi to him, to take pictures with him, to to woo Melania, uh, so that when they have these endorsement meetings, he remembers that he just had dinner with Hawes or whatever, and is like, I like that guy. And then the rest of the Republican Party has to kind of fall in line. Um, I think the, we, you know, we've seen that the his endorsements are not, a, a magic bullet, like they alone cannot win a Republican primary, but uh, they are probably the most powerful single thing. So, you know, if, if any of these primaries, you're looking at a, a bunch of different factors, fundraising, name ID, how strong the candidate is, their ground game, whatever. Uh, but I think Trump's endorsement is a big boost, but it can't overcome, you know, the world if everything else is is stacked against you. Right. Uh, now let's not leave Georgia without talking about what is probably uh, even a bigger story <laughs> than Herschel Walker. And that is what we heard from Fulton County, Georgia, um, this week. Maya, subpoenas against some of the big Trump uh, advisors and allies uh, as part of the investigation into election fraud. Where does it stand now? What are you hearing? And how, uh, how serious is this? Yeah, I mean, we've been following this uh, since Brad Raffensperger was first subpoenaed and he and his wife testified a few weeks ago. Um, Fonnie Willis, the Fulton County District Attorney, is leaving no stone unturned. Essentially, if you were in Georgia between the months of October and January or even February and involved in politics in any meaningful way, um, I think you have probably a one in five chance of being subpoenaed. Whoa. Um, I mean, I'm exaggerating, but a lot of folks have really been paraded through in front of the grand jury over the last few weeks here. Um, And now I think the two biggest names here that we're seeing that have been subpoenaed this week are Rudy Giuliani and Lindsey Graham surrounding um, this call between Brad Raffensperger's team, Secretary of State and, and Donald Trump asking or where the former president asked the Secretary of State to find uh, this nebulous amount of votes to try to flip the election results in, in his favor. The central question here is, I mean, we ob- we know through the phone call recording that, pr- that the former president tried to tamper with the election results. I think now um, what, what grand jurors and DA Willis are trying to figure out is the extent of that tampering outside of the phone call and also what, whether or not this constitutes a crime. And if there can be further um, and if the grand jury can recommend uh, further prosecution here, I, I, um, I think our, as a reporter, uh, what our other big question is, is whether or not Graham and Giuliani actually do comply. Um, and if we do see them walk up the steps at the Fulton County Courthouse, which today seems rather unlikely. Um, and but but these are I mean, these are sort of the central questions surrounding and Graham's involvement is also interesting here because He's obviously not a Georgia resident, but did a lot of the president's bidding in Georgia, making phone calls, also trying to talk to Raffensperger offline um, to figure out, you know, what what possible avenues were available here. But we also know that um, that the secretary of state kind of gave everybody the same answer here, which is I can't help you. Um, There's really nothing we can do to change these election results. And we've checked them multiple times. 
So we'll see what else comes out of these these um, uh, these grand jury sessions. Just just a quick uh, clarification: this is a criminal investigation, correct? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so Rudy Giuliani, of course, says, uh, "Hey, I didn't do anything wrong." Here he is. Uh, he has his own podcast in which he uh, provided his own self-defense here, Rudy Giuliani. Everybody in Washington, the Washington, wants to make me a liar and a crook, and I'm not. But I know I have to protect myself. Now, I, I could have asked for a pardon for a very good reason. I don't want to get framed. I know I didn't do anything wrong. I know I don't act like they do. I don't lie like Raskin and, and Schiff. Hey, Gabe, you've been covering Rudy Giuliani for a long time. He's not a liar. He's not a crook. He always tells the truth, right? Oh, totally. Yeah. And his <laughs> podcast is great, too. Um, I, guess, I guess, you know, what Maya was um, alluding to there, you know, without I'll say it. None of this is necessarily shocking. You know, it's been very clear that the it's it's this sort of uh, shocking but not surprising thing that we've been seeing for so many years around the around the Trump orbit now. It's been very clear that this investigation was getting very serious um, and that, of course, this is what Giuliani is going to say, because what else can he say at this point? Um, he's mm -hmm. been very clear that he is trying to maintain this, you know, dangerous fiction that the election was stolen, but also that, you know, he didn't do anything wrong and that Donald Trump didn't do anything wrong and that he's just a victim here because he loves to be the story. Uh, the question of compliance is obviously a big one, as Maya said, um, and I wouldn't be surprised if this saga drags on for quite some time. But I do think that Giuliani tripling down, quadrupling down, quintupling down on this line is indicative of where Trump world's head is more broadly speaking, not just about this, uh, you know, matter in, in, in Georgia, but also when it comes to the January 6th commission and those hearings, as we've seen, um, it's pretty clear that there are a lot of people close to Trump who are fairly freaked out, not totally obvious to them where this is going next. Yeah, uh, I'll just add very quickly to Gabe's point about the January 6th committee is that there are people in Georgia who are super involved in that, including the, the chair of the Republican Party here in Georgia, who has also been called to testify regarding his efforts to um, uh, appoint a slate of fake electors um, to try to overturn the election results in Georgia that way. It's not a huge storyline nationally, but I think it's worth also pointing to here that there were a number of different avenues that Republicans tried to go down uh, to change these election results here. So, Alex, my take is that the reason so much attention was paid to what uh, to the subpoenas issued by Fulton County is that if there are charges filed here, I mean, this goes way beyond Fulton County, Georgia, in terms of its impact. Possible yeah, and it impact, goes right. Uh it goes right to the uh, attorney general suite in the main justice building here in DC. Uh, and mm -hmm. I I'm sure Merrick Garland is watching this very closely. I mean, he seems so far uncomfortable with the position that he is in, um, which is too bad for him because it was <laughs> eminently obvious that he was going to have to deal with this when he was put up for, for the position of attorney general. Uh, but you know, you have the January 6th committee on one hand, just down the, the street in the Capitol, getting all this attention, potentially bringing new evidence. You know, we don't know what they know versus uh, whether whether the committee is actually bringing anything that the Department of Justice doesn't know. And now you have uh, a DA in, in Georgia potentially bringing criminal charges close to Trump. Mm -hmm. So it's the pressure is mounting on Garland to do something. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't cover the Justice Department, but from my, my colleague like Ryan Riley and, and um, others who do, it's they have this enormous backlog of uh, work with the January 6th, the, the individual rioters. I mean, you're just talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cases that all require enormous amounts of, of you know, legal work and, and they're bringing in outside prosecutors. But it, it all points in one direction and everyone knows where it's pointing. And there's still that big question uh, of what whether they are comfortable or even willing to potentially go after the former president. And uh, so far, it, it really seems like both the White House and the Attorney General just do not want to go there unless they absolutely have to. So I think you have these other people kind of trying to, to almost force their hands or almost make it mm -hmm. uh, impossible for them to not at least seriously consider pursuing charges or indictments or something against the former president. Right. All we have is that one speech where Mary Garland said uh, they would follow the facts. Uh, 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 
wherever they lead, right, or as high as they go. But we haven't seen anything beyond that. You're right. All right, let's jump back into these governor's races. Gabe, uh, you mentioned, uh, and I read your piece this week, that in this post-Roe world, if we can call it that, um, governor, several governor's races have become particularly critical uh, because of what could happen in those states in terms of abortion rights. Uh, and you mentioned the three, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Uh, what's going on? Why so important? Yeah, uh, that's right. And it's actually related to what we were just talking about. These were already some of the most important uh, races coming up for for similar reasons as some others, but in particular these states because of the stakes for the for democracy and for future elections. In every state, what you have currently is a Democratic governor and a conspiracy-friendly, shall we say, Republican-led legislature that mm-hmm. uh, was central to pushes to you know claim that Donald Trump had won the 2020 election and uh, ongoing pushes in some of these states to continue to quote-unquote investigate the vote uh, from 2020, but also to make it such that states have the power to uh, share their own slates of electors, you know, going against the actual vote of its of, of, of the populations there. So there was already this matter that Democrats felt the need that they had to win these governor's mansions in order to protect them. Now, in the post-Roe era that we are looking at, the Republicans who are running for the governor's mansions in these states um, are all fairly, without without uh, much variation, very far to the right in the questions of abortion, uh, and promising pretty explicitly to not only outlaw it, uh, it within the states w- with a, to a very strict degree, but also to criminalize it for doctors. Um, and this would essentially, likely, if these Republican governors were to win these races, outlaw abortion, um, Mm -hmm. criminalize it indeed for millions of people across the entire Midwest, which of course is a problem um, for people in all of these states, but also the surrounding ones, many of which are red states where abortion is illegal. So there's no place in the region potentially to do it. Um, And and in fact, what we're looking at then is up or down votes essentially in all of these three states, um, which one of my one of my sources referred to as the blue wall states, if you remember that, you know, they're not only important for democracy now, but also for abortion. And of course, what happens in those states uh, in midterms tends to be very important for presidential elections, all of which is to say these are sort of the center of the political map right now. Where, uh, Alex, you look at these states as well. Where are they trending now? You've got um, uh, Gretchen Whitmer up for re-election in Michigan, uh, Tony Evers in Wisconsin, and uh, of course, a wide open uh, open seat in Pennsylvania. Uh, where are they trending? Well, I think these are races where the candidates are really going to matter, and the fact that uh, the, the the stakes are real. I mean, it's no it's no longer just a you know um, position statement of where you are on road, but you are the governor of a state that very likely could uh, pass legislation. So in Pennsylvania, which has already had its primary, the Republicans nominated this you know pretty far right uh, state senator Doug Mastriano, who has said that abortion is his top tier agenda. You have a Republican legislature, so it's a very real threat and a very real possibility that if he won, it would uh, they could you know do something pretty drastic uh, considering the politics of the state overall on abortion. Uh, and the Democrat Josh Shapiro is saying that the only thing standing between that and uh, or standing between you know Pennsylvania and a strict ban is is the governor's veto pen. Right now, it's a it's a Democrat Tom Wolf who's term limited. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a case where it could really make a difference. And uh, no matter how people vote in House races or Senate races, you might have a, a significant, which you know in today's politics doesn't necessarily mean a huge number of people, but but a, a significant enough potentially to matter, even if it's half a percent, one percent of um, cross party voters, you know, uh, mm-hmm. people who don't vote straight ticket. Uh, in Michigan, the the primary is still ongoing, but there was a very unusual case where a lot of the leading candidates were kind of thrown off the ballot, uh, Republicans that is, because they they didn't really qualify uh, formally. There was issues with their the way their signatures were collected. So um, it's a little bit unclear there. And Wisconsin, the primary is still going on. So we'll have to see who they nominate. But in general, uh, as these Republican primaries have been shaking up across the country and including in these states, the, they're nominating candidates pretty far to the right. And, um, you know, I, I tend to be skeptical that that 
abortion politics is overall really going to be any kind of silver bullet for Democrats in the midterms. But I think in these key states where the next governor really will actually have a major role to play in what happens, um, I do think it could be significant and and could end up with um, you know some people crossing party lines or, or some moderates moving over to vote for the Democrat. Uh, and Maya, is this has this become a central issue? And what's the latest on the Georgia governor's race, uh, Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams? You know, voters in Georgia are sort of still coming to uh, to the understanding of what the stakes are on abortion specifically um, in in Georgia. I think so. Essentially, Brian Kemp has in his first um, uh, uh, term as governor actually already signed into law a quote-unquote heartbeat bill that would ban abortions after six weeks. It's currently held up in federal court, but in the next few weeks now, under um, now that Roe has been overturned, it's likely to take, take effect. I think what a number of Democratic voters are now worried about is what happens if Kemp indeed does win a second term and his Republican-controlled state house takes those measures even further. Um, though interestingly, Kemp has not weighed in very publicly on this and has already mm. said that as governor, he would not call a special legislative session like some of his other Southern Republican governors have committed to doing um, and has really tried is really saying that he wants to get through this election season and not try to alienate folks. I think, though, you know, to, to Alex's point, I'm not sure if this creates sort of a wave effect like Democrats have been hoping and trying to push for. But in Georgia, I do think it stops the bleeding. You know, you had a lot of young voters and, and black voters um, and even like first or second time voters, the real base of the of the party now here who were feeling really um, uh, disaffected with Democratic leadership, not just in Washington, but in Georgia. And this now has woken up a lot of people. It's encouraged folks to get more enthusiastic. And, um, and I mean, the veto pen argument is really powerful. And it's gotten, I think, a lot more Democrats or Democratic voters now interested um, in getting more involved, which is exactly what, what Abrams and her ticket will need uh, over these next few months here. All right. Uh, quickly, a couple of other governor's races I just wanted to touch on. Uh, California, I can tell you as a Californian, uh, Gavin Newsom, he doesn't he hardly has an opponent. I mean, he's he's just a sure, sure bet for reelection. But he's and he's got a lot of money and he's spending some of that money on television in Florida. Here is an ad Gavin Newsom ran this week in Florida. It's Independence Day. So let's talk about what's going on in America. Freedom is under attack in your state. Your Republican leaders, they're banning books, making it harder to vote restricting speech in classrooms, even criminalizing women and doctors. I urge all of you living in Florida to join the fight or join us in California. Hey, Gabe, <laughs> I don't think Gavin's going to get many votes out of Florida. What's up? <laughs> uh, well, there's a few answers to this. The easy one, that's the tempting one that Gavin probably doesn't mind us talking about here that, that Newsom is excited about uh, potentially is you know, obviously, Joe Biden says he's going to run for reelection in 2024. Newsom would be on the list of people who would run otherwise. And the person that he's targeting here uh, is Ron DeSantis, who is widely thought to be the yeah. second uh, frontrunner on the Republican side. Um, more realistically speaking, though, because, of course, again, Joe Biden says he's running again, uh, is, you know, this is this is Gavin Newsom understanding that he's got some money and time to kill because he's likely going to win reelection pretty easily. Uh, and he's just trying to show some bite. Uh, and get some attention. Uh, you know, there's this whole talk, and Newsom is one of the many people who's been saying it within the Democratic Party that he just wants to see Democrats fighting more. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, no matter what the topic is, and he clearly sees that it would be fun, perceives that it would be an interesting thing to do to try and troll DeSantis and see if he can draw him into a one on one debate. More broadly speaking, on the actual policy matters, you know, California has been dealing with an exodus of, of uh, residents for quite some time. Not a massive one, but a significant one. A lot of people going to Florida, a lot of people going to Texas. This is a very sore point for Newsom. And I think that he probably genuinely does want to lure some people back. So there is the actual uh, substance of the matter as well. Yeah, this is if, if I could just uh, jump uh, go in. ahead, please, Ali. I, I think this is a fight that both of these guys are very happy to have oh, with yeah. each other. Uh, they're perfect foils, and they were kind of on a collision course uh, from the beginning. They were, they were inaugurated a day apart from each other. You know, both governors of of mega states that are trying to be ideological models for the country. 
and even if neither of them or only one of them runs for president, they are still jockeying for position inside their own parties uh, to be, you know, leaders, to be to thought leaders, uh, money leaders. And uh, I, I think this is just, you know, this particular thing might have just been a clever PR stunt by by Newsom, but it does speak to the larger issue that uh, both of these guys want to be the the top of the B team, so to speak. You know, to, if, if Trump doesn't run, if Biden doesn't run, they both want to be the 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 top runners up, uh, ready to go. And for all those reasons, you just know that uh, Greg Abbott is watching this from afar in Austin, sort of thinking, how do I get in on this? Totally. Or, you know, Gavin, don't forget about me. Yeah. Hit, punch me too. Yeah. Uh, I just I just want to add, there's one other dimension to this, which is, uh, those of us in California know, a long relationship, friendly relationship between Gavin Newsom and uh, the, attorney, uh, the vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris. Uh, they once made a pledge never to run against each other. Uh, and it's pretty clear that with this ad in Florida, Gavin Newsom is sending a message to Kamala Harris. If Joe Biden does not run, don't think you're going to have a free ride. <laughs> and any former deal we made is probably off. Uh, well, and a lot of that comes from the fact that they had very parallel rises in San Francisco. Yeah, but also yeah. To, to speak you know, operationally about it, they had the same consultants, like the same people yes. working for them yes. for many, many years. Uh, I, I reported this recently uh, in a, an article of mine, but Kamala Harris has actually not been in touch at all with um, many of the people who with whom she uh, you know, worked in 2020 recently, partially because she doesn't want the, to be thinking that anyone to be thinking that she's trying to run in 2024, because of course her boss is. But I would suggest that it's possible to read a lot of this as uh, Gavin Newsom has an up and running political operation. Kamala Harris doesn't. She's the vice president. There you go. All right. A little bit of breaking news here, uh, which is the jobs report out from the Labor Department. Just as we began this podcast, recording this podcast, unemployment rate is down to 3.6 percent and 372,000 new jobs were created in the month of June. That's good news, but I will, uh, I, I'll bet you $100 by the end of the day, there will be several leading Democrats who will blame Joe Biden for those numbers and say they're not good enough, that's not high enough, he's not doing enough. The wave of criticism against Joe Biden. We'll take that up here with our uh, political reporters and our roundtable after a quick break here on the Bill Press Pod. And today's roundtable is brought to you by the Iron Workers Union. The members of the Iron Workers, as good men and women, are the backbone of the American labor movement. You think about iconic structures in America from the Golden Gate Bridge to the Gateway Arch in St. Louis, the New World Trade Center uh, Tower in uh, uh, Lower New York, all built by members of the Iron Workers under the leadership of President. Eric Dean. We salute the iron workers, thank them for their great work rebuilding America, and thank them for their support, longtime support of the Bill Press Pod. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs. 
www.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back with today's roundtable, wrapping up here from New York Magazine, uh, national political correspondent Gabe DiBenedetti, from the New York Times, national political reporter Maya King, and from NBC and MSNBC News, political reporter Alex Seitzwald. Uh, it looks like Joe Biden can't do anything right or certainly can't do enough to keep Democrats happy. The criticism, wave of criticism he's had in the last couple of weeks has been coming not so much from Republicans, but from tele- fellow Democrats who say basically he's not tough enough, he's not mean enough, he's run out of ideas, he's too calm. I don't know. Add it all up. Alex, uh, what does it mean? Is this uh, the f- f- <laughs> proverbial circular firing squad? Well, it's not good. Uh, it's it's certainly not the sign of a party that is feeling confident heading into uh, midterms. And it doesn't help. Uh, you know, the, the core problem that Democrats face is that their base is not excited about voting. And then to have a bunch of leaders in your own party saying, hey, we suck at this. Our president sucks. This is everything's terrible. That's probably not going to get people to vote. Uh, but I think at this point, like if you talk to, you know, anybody who works in politics on the democratic side, they are, have such a defeatist attitude right now. They are so fatalistic. They are sure their party's going to lose. I mean, I, I have conversations all the time with democratic operatives who are, you know, working for candidates, trying to win elections this year who say, yeah, well, when Republicans take back the house and Senate, they're going to blah, 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 blah. You know, it's just a baked in assumption. Uh, so I think people have just kind of emotionally written off the, at least the first uh, two years of the Biden presidency. And the Biden, frankly, is not doing a lot to counter that. I mean, he he seems to have been kind of lost the plot and just kind of floating along since the Afghanistan uh, bailout. Things did not go according to plan, and there seemed to be little plan B. Uh, so, you know, there's still time, but uh, it's hard to see how things could really turn around at this point. The approval ratings are historically low. The, the, the wrong track numbers are historically high uh, in polls. And even after the Dobbs decision, the generic ballot has, has tightened. So, you know, the percentage of people who are saying they want Democrats in control of Congress has, has gone up, but Biden's approval rating has remained flat. So I think you have a lot of uh, the Democratic base that is woken up because of the Dobbs decision, but they are angry at Democrats too. They're angry at Biden. They're angry at Pelosi. They're angry at Schumer for not doing more, although it's unclear you know, what they could actually do. So I, I don't know that that necessarily translates to votes. Uh, it could just as easily translate to, to apathy for a lot of these voters. So uh, I, I, I don't I want to say time is running out because time may have already passed, but it's it's uh, it's not looking good. I'll say that. Uh, and on that point of the Dobbs decision, there's been a lot of criticism directed at Joe Biden since the Supreme Court ruled uh, that uh, he didn't have a plan in place or he didn't speak, come up with a plan to counter the Supreme Court decision. Again, per Alex's point, as if there's that much he as president even can do. Um uh, and it's been a couple of weeks now, but within two hours from when we end this recording of this podcast, the president has scheduled uh, an event in the White House where he's going to sign an executive order uh, directing the federal government to make it, as we understand, um, make it easier or convenient, as convenient as possible for women in red states where abortion is illegal to be able to attain an abortion in a neighboring state. Maya, is this too little, too late? I think it's something, you know, honestly, um, the reason why, at least from what I've heard from from voters and also some Democratic operatives, there's so much frustration with the Biden administration is because they feel like he had time. They feel like Democrats have really squandered opportunities to organize and assure voters that they are the party that will protect bodily autonomy, but also um be proactive on these very pressing issues that are taking place, Um, not just the economy, but also uh, the climate. Um, I think that's another big issue that has disappointed a number of voters. And also just the fact that this has boiled down really to the power 
that state houses have. I've heard a number of complaints from folks that, you know, look at Republicans. They spent years organizing essentially to take over a majority of state houses and be able to pass at these lower levels that we realize are a lot more important than perhaps we originally thought this very critical legislation. Where is that same fight? Where is that same uh, apparatus in place um, for for Democrats? And, and why isn't Joe Biden or sort of offering um, or trying to lay the groundwork for that? But I will I will offer this as well. I think what also gets forgotten is the fact that really Democrats' message um, at ahead of 2020 was, look, Biden might not be the most exciting candidate. He might not be the person, even your first choice for a number of Democratic voters. But look at the alternative in Trump. Let's stave off a Democratic uh, crisis, a crisis of democracy, um, and and just try to get someone in place who's going to sort of restabilize the country, restabilize uh, the sense of, of safety or security that that once existed in America. Um, I mean, that hasn't really come to pass if you ask certain people, but I think people expected Biden to sort of be this this um, overarching uh, political uh, figure who would really be able to tackle all of these crises at once. And that has that has not really proven, obviously, you know, that that, that hasn't happened. But I don't think he was also marketed that way. Um, so I feel like we've also kind of gotten... We've kind of, I think he's kind of done what what a lot of Democrats said he would do, though we realize the 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 level of these crises just commands a lot more. I, I hope that makes sense. <laughs> it does. And Gabe, uh, I know you're eager to jump in here, uh, but I, I want to interrupt with just, uh, and as, to a certain extent, Biden can't win for losing. All right, the people say he's not tough enough. His rhetoric is not strong enough. I, this is a quick clip of Joe Biden. In January, just a few months ago, January 2022, here's Joe Biden when Republicans blocked uh, an effort and two Democrats, senators, blocked an effort uh, in the Senate to do something about voting rights legislation. Joe Biden. So I ask every elected official in America, how do you want to be remembered? Do you want to be on the side of Dr. King or George Wallace? Do you want to be on the side of John Lewis or Bull Connor? Do you want to be the side of Abraham Lincoln or Jefferson Davis? And at that point, Gabe, as you know, leading Democrats, including Senator Dick Durbin, said, come on, Joe, you got to tone down your rhetoric. You can't be so mean. You can't be so strong. I mean, you can't win for losing. Yeah, there is. You, there's no way to look at this and not have at least that, uh, you know, at the intellectual level, uh, some sympathy for Biden in the sense that he is pulled in a million different directions here. And and to, to Maya's point, you know, he absolutely was marketed as back to normal during the 2020 yep. campaign. Yep. At the same time, he also compared himself openly to FDR and said, we have all these challenges. <laughs> we have to, you know, it's time for the biggest revolution. He didn't use the word revolution for obvious reasons, but it's time for a you know overhaul of the economy and, and the climate. And of course, he was in the, the grips of the pandemic at the time. He promised, you know, generational change. It just wasn't what most people perceived to be his, uh, you know, the main thrust of his push. Uh, you know, this is obviously something that I've been thinking about a lot. But Biden remembers very similar moments happening in the first term of the Obama presidency when there was this, you know, the world didn't feel like it was falling apart in quite the same way. But there was this, why won't Barack Obama just do more? Why won't he work more with Congress? Why won't he issue more executive orders? Then it was largely on the economy, um, which looked very different than it does now. But there was a huge sense of frustration within the White House. And by the way, Biden was very, very sympathetic to Obama at the time, but but also understood this this need to be more communicate more with with the American people. But, you know, especially with Democrats, mm -hmm. um, it's sort of a, a tough situation. The reality at the same time is that he can be out there more issuing these executive orders and talking about them. I mean, it is true that given all that's been happening, you know, we had these mass shootings over the weekend. Biden's next big speech about anything was in Cleveland about, you know, pension policy. He didn't he didn't rip up his schedule and suddenly start talking more about guns. It is true that they did just pass in on the Hill with some help from Joe Biden, the largest uh, gun safety legislation in 30 years. It's also true that that was hardly sufficient to take on the massive uh, you know, amount of stuff that needs to be done uh, on, on the matter of gun violence. So 
it's a very difficult situation because the American people uh, historically have no patience whatsoever for the argument. Well, I'm doing whatever I can, but what do you expect from me from the White House? Um, and Biden is not one to make that argument. So there is a certain degree of what you know, political scientists Brendan Nyhan calls Green Lanternism, which is the sort of president has powers, president should use powers, president should do more. At the same time, uh, there is a, a, a legitimate argument that what Biden could be doing is using the bully pulpit to at least communicate more with people what he is doing, but also that he, you know, one of the things he succeeds with politically speaking, historically, is his, using his empathy, trying to make people understand I get where you're coming from. I get the pain you're feeling. That's not something he's been very successful in doing as president. I think he would benefit greatly if he were able to somehow communicate to even his own base voters, even his own colleagues on Capitol Hill. Listen, I get it. I'm working on some of this stuff. It's just a very basic thing, a very basic thing for any politician that he's been unable to do recently. Uh, All good points. Uh, I would just add, finally, that I think overall, Uh, for Democrats going into the midterms with a strategy of placing all the blame on their own president of the United States, as you've all indicated, uh, is not necessarily a very smart political strategy for 2022 or for 2024. Uh, Well, great look at the political landscape uh, uh, in this country today. Uh, Thank you so much to Maya King and Alex Seitzwall and Gabe DiBenedetti. Uh, with all of that stuff and all of that work you've been doing, there's always something that you've been working on or not that catches your attention. We call it our favorite story of the week, uh, stops you in your tracks and made you at least think about it, maybe laugh or cry about it. Uh, Maya, what caught your attention? Sure. Um, I loved this conversation between Zach Cheney Rice and Larry Wilmore and Vulture came out on uh, Wednesday. Um, and it's titled Larry Wilmore Knows No Bounds. Um, I'm sure you all are familiar with him, just an iconic comedy writer um, mm-hmm. and spent quite a, quite a bit of time on TV. Um, and it was just a really good conversation back and forth between these two guys about uh, Wilmore's career, his upbringing and his approach to comedy. Really nice palate cleanser uh, for what has been sort of a crazy couple of weeks in, in politics. Kind of a refreshing change, huh? Absolutely. <laughs> How about you, uh, Gabe? Uh, first, I agree with Maya. You should all be subscribing and picking up the latest copies of New York Magazine within which that ran. Um, but <laughs> not to just Touché. be a company Touché. man Touché. here. Um, I will, I'd like to talk very briefly about um, a new excerpt that ran in The Atlantic of Mark Leibovich's new book um, oh, yeah. called The Most Pathetic Men in America. Um, Leibovich, of course, is the former New York Times writer and now Atlantic writer who wrote This Town and has been talking a little bit about how that book about Washington culture feels completely out of step with today and sort of like it pales in comparison to this moment. Um, Leibovich did a good job, I think, of doing something that many people struggled with over the last few years, which is to really understand uh, the depths to which many in the Republican Party uh, subjected themselves and w- how far they went in essentially removing all, um, you know, sense of self in, in subservience to Trump. This uh, coincides with the publication of a book by Tim Miller, longtime Republican operative on a similar topic. Um, it's uh, useful, not in any sense of excusing the people who did this kind of, uh, you know, perform subservience to Trump for so many years and continue to, but it's very useful in terms of, in an entertaining way in both cases, uh, really understanding the mindset and complete lack thereof in many cases of this sort of um, pathetic toadying that we sometimes saw, and often uh, saw, I should say. Right. Very good. By the way, Mark Leibovich is already scheduled uh, for the Bill Press pod. We'll be interviewing him uh, in a week or so. Uh, and that uh, that we'll let you know when uh, our interview with Mark and his new book is up on the Bill Press pod. So Alex Eitzwald, your favorite story of the week. So uh, I'm actually, this is, story was published a while ago, but it gained new relevance. So I hope that's okay under the, yes, the qualifications under bill. the rules, right. <laughs> um, so there was a, a new trailer that dropped for a new movie that's coming out uh, later this year called The Woman King, which is based on real oh, yeah. events that I knew nothing about. Um, and I don't know if it's actually based on the story, but there's a great Smithsonian Magazine article from 2011 by Mike Dash called Dahomey's Women Warriors, uh, which is about these super elite, very uh, well-trained, very aggressive female warriors in the former African kingdom of Dahomey. 
they were once called problematically, but the Black Sparta. And uh, I'm excited for the movie. And this article is just incredible with these uh, contemporaneous accounts of the the feats of their um, you know bravery and uh, gruesomeness. And if you like history, if you if you like uh, shocking events, then you will like this uh, article. So definitely recommend it. Uh, and by the way, Viola Davis plays the uh, the uh, the king or the queen, whatever. The, uh, yes, in this movie. yeah, that's an, that's in and of itself a reason uh, to be sure to be excited about this this movie. Well, I got to say, my favorite story. This is totally off the wall, <laughs> but um, it has to do with the fact that it was in the New York Times this week in the food section on Wednesday. Now. I say this because I have this sort of weird hobby. I love to visit cemeteries. Uh, I recently went with a friend to um, Rock Creek Cemetery here in Washington, and we said hello to Tim Russert and to Gore Vidal. Um, Then we went out to Congressional Cemetery uh, and said hello to Cokie Roberts and Marion Barry, uh, the mayor for life, among other people there. Uh, But in that context, the New York Times reported this week uh, that there's a whole new trend, a whole new wrinkle in cemeteries, and that is having people's favorite recipes etched on their tombstones. Now, cemeteries can get kind of boring, but this is really one way to liven them up. And the uh, article talked about and showed pictures of one uh, tombstone with a recipe for mom's Christmas cookies there, <laughs> another for Kay's fudge, uh, which I just think this is a great idea. It will certainly make cemeteries a lot more lively and interesting. Uh, it means you remember the good times. Sometimes the best, the one thing you remember about people is one of the uh, particular foods, particularly of a mother or grandmother that you so much enjoyed. Uh, so I just wanted to celebrate this trend. Uh, I think the message is you may forget me, but you'll never forget my peach cobbler. <laughs> There it is. Okay, guys, thank you again to a great panel discussion today. Uh, you can find um, Alex Seitzwald on NBC and MSNBC News. Follow Maya King in the New York Times. And follow Gabe Benedetti at New York Magazine. Gabe also has a new book coming out in a couple of months called The Long Alliance. It's about the, uh, uh, the relationship over the years between Joe Biden and Barack Obama. And we'll have a link to you can pre-order a copy of Gabe's book a link to pre-order it in the episode notes to today's roundtable podcast notes thanks again to our panel thanks to all of you for joining us have a great weekend and uh, be sure to come back on Tuesday our next podcast is a very important interview with David Kurtzer who's a Pulitzer Prize winning historian who has a very powerful new book out called The Pope at War which is the authoritative history of Pius XII during World War II and what he did, or more importantly, did not do about the Holocaust. Uh, Well, that's up. It's a shocking book coming up uh, on next Tuesday's podcast. Have a great weekend, everybody. We'll see you soon again on the Bill Press Pod.